than ask someone, will you do this for me? And then they say yes. And we say, do you promise to do this for me? I heard recently about a wagon train that was making its way out west and moving over the snow-covered mountains of the Rockies. There were only three individuals left in this wagon train. Their names happened to be Al, Jedediah, and Jedediah Jr. Al was not faring well. Al decided, this is as far as I go. I'm just going to need to fall asleep in hypothermia and never wake up. And, and so as, as Jedediah and his son were recognizing this to be the case, they, and Al called them over to, to, uh, with one dying request. He said, Jedediah, you've got to promise me this. When you get to where you're going, name a town after me. He says, I will. And he, and he pulls Jedediah Jr. close to and he says, you got to make sure that your father does this. you got to promise me. Al says, you got to promise me that wherever you go, that somewhere you will name a town after me. Jedediah Jr. looks at him and says, I promise you, Mr. Bukerke. And there you have it. Being promised something should mean having reassurance that the person will follow through. Today we see instances of God following through on some of his promises. Some of them were like, yeah, finally. And others of them were like, why? But it's all still the same, that God keeps his promises. And I want you to see that God will do as he has promised. What did God promise Abraham? I, I won't list them all off over again, but, but most of them, lots of them, of what he promised would start with him having a child. Not just a child, but the promised child. Now he and Sarah, you might remember, took a cultural way of dealing with the issue and uh, basically she gave Abraham permission to have a concubine, another wife in Hagar, and they made sure they had a child in the son Ishmael. But God told him in Genesis 17, as you'll recall, when, when God told him at, at age 90, no, you are going to have your own son. We read in verse 17 of Genesis 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Abraham was quite invested in this little gimmick that he and Sarah had gone along with. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So Genesis 21 that we jump ahead to, or we're, we're finally into here this morning, finally brings us to the birth of the promised son, 
Isaac. We read in verse 1 of Genesis 21, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore a son, bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, uh, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Notice how we are told that God kept his promise in the birth of Isaac. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. First of all, I want you to see here, trust that God keeps his promises, even when it might seem impossible. Even when it might seem impossible. We, we, we have seen this theme, as, as, as Jeannie mentioned in sharing, we have seen this theme over and over again in the life of Abraham. Parents, grandparents, when you uh, find yourself in an impossible situation, just think, like Abraham, it might be one of those situations where your kids or grandkids are going to be looking back on. I mean, Abraham was kind of the guinea pig for this, right? You never know what guinea pig you are. For your kids or grandkids, when God lets you be in what seems like an impossible situation. This is nothing to those who are familiar with God's word. In fact, we know that God likes to put his children in what seems like impossible situations. God kept his promise by Sarah giving birth to Isaac. You might remember from Genesis 18, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And verse 5 emphasizes once again the impossibility of the situation where we read, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Because... Isaac's name means laughter. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She was still a looker, of course, so I don't think she references how old she is. I'm going to tell you, I love action movies, right? Have you ever noticed... How the, the climactic moment of action movies, they are written and directed to create maximum suspense, right? So the sidekick is tied up, and he's laying on a conveyor belt, and he's slowly moving toward this burning furnace. And, and the love entrance has been captured, and she's holding on, by, uh, uh, holding on to a rope by her last pinky, as she dangles over a pool of crocodiles. And the bad guy is laughing, his finger moving in slow motion to press the button on something that's going to end the world as we know it. Right? You've seen this movie before. And somehow the hero saves all of them through one seamless move that could only have happened at that exact moment at, and, and at that pinnacle moment of suspense for those of us who are watching it. 
I believe these stories are hard, hardwired into our DNA. Because we're waiting for the ultimate hero. These stories are written over and over and over again they, because they resonate with us. They sell tickets. Because all of us at our core are waiting for our ultimate hero. And we know that it's going to come at the ultimate moment of suspense. And as I've pointed out, our hero is interested in showing off his maximum glory. This usually involves what seems like impossible situations. The final impossible situation for this earth is going to take place in the, in the future at, at this battle of Armageddon where, where it, it's going to look pretty bleak as the leader of every nation is deceived by the false prophet and the Antichrist. And, and the leader of every nation somehow brings their military forces to bear at this battle of Armageddon. You can read about this in Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, it doesn't say on the great day of the death of the God of the Almighty. No, it's going to be a great day of God Almighty because he's setting them up to get hit like a golf ball off a tee. He's setting them up for like pins that are going to get struck down with that bowling ball. And soon after, the world is going to see God's hero sweep in and clean things up. And this is what it's going to look like from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That doesn't sound very nice. God's not always nice. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he, is, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. In that moment is when that ache for a hero to come and swing in at the at the pinnacle climactic moment that ache is going to be met. That that hunger that we have is finally going to be satisfied. Until then, we're going to keep making movies and telling stories. And I don't believe any of us are actually going to be present for this except maybe watching from heaven. But we go through our own moment of physical defeat and loss on the day of our death. If the Lord should tarry. Unless it's sudden and in our sleep, which I'm voting for for myself. But we will wonder if God is true to his promises. And if we know Christ as our Savior, he is.
God encourages us to look beyond our moment of death to the centuries of our eternal life. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then we're told toward the end of this passage, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because we can trust God. Even knowing this ride ends with our death. But knowing Christ, it only opens up to more life. Trust that God keeps his promises also, even when it might cause pain. We see this in verse 8 through 13. And the child grew and was weaned, speaking of Isaac, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Ishmael by this time is around 17 years old. As I said, Abraham's become quite attached to his firstborn, as you can imagine. Ishmael's laughter isn't just a matter of having fun off on his own. The idea is that he's mocking Isaac. It's likely that Ishmael felt felt very comfortable with his position, that he felt entitled to some sort of seniority over this newborn. Galatians actually uses Ishmael as an example of the persecution dealt by by fleshly religious people when it says in Galatians 4.29 that at the same time he who was born according to the flesh, speaking of Ishmael, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. And also it is now. Contrasting those born according to the flesh through, through fleshly religion compared to those born according to the Spirit represented by Isaac in this situation. And Sarah's demand was painful for Abraham. We read in verse 11 following, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. This term displeasing means to shake violently like curtains in the wind. He shuddered at the thought. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Notice Sarah's concern was, I don't want this other son sharing in Isaac's inheritance. Verse 13 says, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Abraham was deeply moved within and perhaps somewhat displeased with this turn of events. You know, it made me think of a man that was was standing in his backyard and he looks at his garden and he sees this little vine growing these huge pumpkins. <clears throat> and he's looking up at his, his acorn tree. And he looks at this huge tree with these little acorns. 
He's thinking, why is this the case? This little vine has these huge pumpkins, and this huge tree has these little acorns, until one fell and landed on his head. He said, now I get it. That would have been very different if that had been pumpkins up there. Our tendency is to think about how we wish things should be, how we think things should be. They're usually, we usually think they should be different than what God has designed. We should spend time thinking, though, about all the things that should make us glad for God's design, counting our blessings, being thankful, which I, I hope you got a little of this week. We like the idea of all things working together for the good of God's children, but we don't like the idea of that good, meaning it's going to make us into more into the image of Christ, the suffering servant. Notice where Romans 8 takes the argument, right? In verse 31, after he says, uh, God works all things together for good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he predestined to be conformed, uh, predestined he also, I'm sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good he's talking about. But notice where he goes next. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's the stuff he's talking about. And then he actually taps it off by saying, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These are all the things that God's saying, don't worry, it's working out for good. It's conforming you to the image of my son. And then he closes verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our thought is, no, God, I'm, I'm not so... I'm not really interested in being a conqueror. I kind of don't want to go through the battle. But we can trust him even when it might cause pain. In a man-centered theology, this makes no sense. In man-centered theology, man is sovereign and God is morally responsible to man. And Christians who, who have this mentality, they think that Christians who suffer just have bad luck, or they draw a bad lot, which somehow lined them up to learn more. But, but, but the tendency is to think, God, I don't need to learn anymore. And, and I'm sovereign, and you're morally responsible, so you're supposed to uh, obey that request. In biblical God, a biblical God-centered worldview, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense because God is sovereign. And we are morally responsible to him. Whatever his will brings us to, his grace is going to bring us through. And we can find greater joy and reward from walking closer with him than we find in our comfort. So we pick up in this story. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water which is basically as much water as one person's going to be able to carry, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, this child of 17. <clears throat> Maybe that along with the child means he also gave him water and bread as well. 
he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And so we're going to pick up with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness. But from what took place next, we can learn to trust, trust God to keep his promises, even when it might cause trouble. We read, when the water in the skin was gone, Hagar put the child under one of the bushes. So we're probably talking like three, four days here of uh, with it being without water. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. You've got to wonder, why is it? God, why is it not God has heard your voice? God has heard the voice of Ishmael. I think it's because Ishmael is the one that has been, it has been promised. He will live on. He will have many descendants. <clears throat> it says, lift up, up, <clears throat> up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Just as God had promised Abraham, God kept his promise by preserving Ishmael's life. You might remember back to the passage that, that Pastor Jeff handled regarding Ishmael and Isaac and, and Ishmael's um, conception and, and um, uh, Sarah driving Hagar away. That, that an angel met Hagar there at that point too, telling her, go back and serve your uh, master. <clears throat> this would have been 18 years prior to this situation that we're in. And, and Hagar was told back there in Genesis 16, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, Hagar had already been promised that this son Ishmael is going to live, is going to, to uh, thrive, is going to flourish. Now, now we know that Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael, are the Arab people. And I'm not, I'm not contending with this that God should have let Ishmael die or something like that and not cause trouble. I'm just pointing out that God is keeping his promise. And that promise even is a consequence of Abraham's sin with Hagar. How does that work? I don't know. But we see here that God does as he said he would do. He, he, did, he does to people as he said, as he had promised. Remember that verse 1 of our chapter? We read, Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew and lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This should be no surprise that even out in the wilderness with a single mom, Ishmael grew and flourished and really became the father 
of, of many nations. One writer says, the Arab world is a force to be reckoned with today. And it all began with Ishmael. <clears throat> the next time we will see Ishmael, well, we won't be there in Genesis 25, but is at Abraham's burial. Where it says, and he was buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. In that same chapter, we're told that Ishmael became the father of 12 princes. And that was in keeping with God's promises. But you know, there's a difference between being saved from the penalty of something and being saved from the consequence. Imagine a father who tells his 16-year-old son, I'm going to buy you one car, and it's going to be whatever car you want. But I'm only going to do it once. So the 16-year-old son says, I want a 2023 Corvette. Sons, stop elbowing your dads. My, my boys are staring uh, holes through me right now. No. So what happens? The father cannot find any insurance company to insure this Corvette for his 16-year-old son. He's been at it for a week. And he just can't find it. And the son is just chomping at the bit to drive this car. So he finally uh, sneaks out into the garage one night, pulls it out of the garage, gets it onto the street, slams on the gas pedal. Anybody that's driven a muscle car will know you cannot do that. right? Especially with cold tires. Those tires lose their traction and all of a sudden he's just fishtailing all over the street. Totals the Corvette. Without insurance. Comes back to his dad, says, Dad, I need another car. He's still his father's son, right? But the consequences still stand. You, you, the father's like, you're still my son, but the consequence of your actions is still going to be there. If you're like me, you can often identify with the conclusion of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I am wretched. Thank you for Jesus. And it makes more, me more grateful for the very next verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm still God's child. But I am still going to live with the consequences of my sin. And like Abraham sending off Ishmael with Hagar. We can trust that God keeps his promises. Even when it might cause trouble for us. A lot of what I've told you here this morning. It flies in the face of our love for comfort. And our love for ease. It begins, it begs people's question. Why would God let bad things happen to good people? I honestly, when I hear that, I think of Jesus hanging on the cross. And think, what are you saying about this? Is this not a good person? I mean, you're, according to the sinking, either God's not involved with it, and Jesus 
some, or Jesus somehow deserved it, right? Either, either God let something slip here, or Jesus isn't a good person, because that's some really bad things happening to the best person. Or it may be that that whole question is really screwed up, and it comes from a man-centered idea that man is sovereign and God is morally responsible. Life doesn't work that way. Instead of thinking God doesn't let bad things happen to good people, he tells us to remember the death of the one that we are called to follow. He calls us to remember what he did, but also to remember, this is where I'm taking you. To die to yourself and live to Christ. As we remember communion here this morning, we remember it as something that God promised, but it brought pain. It brought trouble to the one, the last person that God the Father would want to trouble. But it was for his greater purpose of our good. And he invites us to look on his sacrifice and revel in it. To look on his sacrifice and thank him for it. So as you take that cup, as you take that little piece of bread that's down below that juice, he asks you to remember the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood for you. The praise team is going to come up and play two songs for us. And during that second song, there'll be plenty of time. Invite you individually or as your household to go and to partake of that bread and juice. Let's bow our heads together. Lord God, we thank you for keeping your promise at such great sacrifice to you, at great sacrifice to your son, at great sacrifice to the entire Godhead to experience in that eternal moment an eternal sense of separation that we deserve. A death that we deserve. Pain and regret and penalty that we deserve. And you call us to remember it. To remember what we deserve, but what the greatest person, our hero, that's the furthest from deserving the penalty of our sin, he took it for us instead. Thank you so much, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.